0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here is your host, Moyez Jiwa.
1: My guest on the podcast today, Swapna Kakani, was born with short bowel syndrome that required intravenous parenteral nutrition for almost all of her life. Following dozens of surgeries, she finally had a bowel transplant. In this podcast, She describes how healthcare made a difference to her over the years and what was really valuable in those experiences. Here to tell her story is Swapna Kakani. Swapna, I'm delighted to host a conversation with you. I want to go back to 1989, which is the year of your birth. For most families, this is a very happy occasion when they have this bundle of joy just handed to them and all things are well. But for your family, it was a particularly trying time. Do you want to talk us through the first few days of your life?
2: Actually, my mom had a normal pregnancy, normal ultrasounds, normal course over the first two trimesters and most of the third trimester. And it was only after her water broke, like any other woman, when that happens, went to the hospital and got an ultrasound done of the baby. And at that time it showed that the bowel was dilated. And that's very ambiguous. That can mean a lot of things. I was born seven weeks premature, which today doctors will say they do well. And right, we have metrics of how many weeks we indicate or think that the the child will do well and after i was born i just kept on spitting up bile and i was not able to keep anything down the milk down and they seeing the ultrasound again after i was born seeing the dilated bowel loops they immediately had the suspicion that the the bowels need to be looked at and at that time in Huntsville, Alabama there was no pediatric surgeon we were not a big enough town or hospital to require that subspecialty at the time. And so many, all, all children who needed that subspecialty would get transferred either two hours north to Tennessee or two hours south to, to another city in Alabama where there's a ch- also a children's hospital and well-known children's hospital. And I was transferred at two days old immediately, pretty soon after the birth. To that children's hospital and I was told that in the ambulance I took out my NG tube which is the nasogastric tube so I, I got my spunkiness from that first day onwards and the surgeon thankfully that was on call was also the surgeon that had a personal passion for this rare disease and this kind of presentation these birth defects and um, took me to surgery immediately in the middle of the night and that's when he found i was born with the congenital defect of intestinal atresia where the intestine was not formed correctly and it was what was remaining was in worm-like segments so a lot of times they have to take that those segments out and then connect what's remaining And it really depends on how much of it is atretic and what is remaining, what is functional, what is physiologically adequate. And unfortunately, the result was extensive. And then that's when I was diagnosed with short bowel syndrome, which short bowel syndrome is is the name of the chronic GI rare disease, but it has so many etiologies. One subset of etiologies is congenital defects, and then one of those congenital defects is atresia. But there's so many ways one could can get short bowel syndrome, and it was really the the doctor who said take one day at a time. And there's not a lot of data at the at the time on the how long one can live on the therapies you get put on. So then that same surgery, so he reconnected the bowel as well as he could. And in that same surgery, knowing that you cannot use the bowel, especially at that time, you get a central line or permanent IV in the chest to receive IV nutrition that will bypass the GI tract and go straight into the bloodstream to feed. And I also got a a G-tube, a gastrostomy tube, to eventually feed the gut itself as well and, and vent the stomach and other things. And that's a very common occurrence. When there's congenital defect and diagnosis of short bowel syndrome
1: thank you now i've often heard you speak about your parents and to give credit to them for how well you've done throughout your life this must have been a dreadful time for them the notion that they had this beautiful little girl who was so sick how do they reflect on that experience
2: so something that may be unique of my journey is that my mom is an OBGYN And she had, from that day onward, she's still practicing. Uh, she has never seen an ultrasound like that with her patients. And to know pregnancy so well, as the physician themselves, and to have a normal pregnancy and then for this to still occur when you really, right, you do everything in your control and still the outcome that you don't want happens. I don't think I would be here if it wasn't for them and my medical team, but let's be real. The people who drive you day in and day out in the home are your caregivers, your loved ones and from i think from day 1 as well they said that we're not going to let this limit our lives and more so we're going to appreciate each day alive and healthy and celebrate the small and big milestones and and not pity her man i i beg for pity sometimes some days but i don't get any special treatment or pity and never have and i think that has really shaped how i cope how i constantly trying to move forward, maybe even too much, just think, okay, that happened, next thing, let's keep on going, there's a life to live, and really try to, not try, they did, they gave me as much of a normal childhood as possible with the interruptions of going to the hospital for an IV line infection, but making sure this is not the end of the world.
1: So tell us about your childhood. You you must have been quite special because where other kids were going to parties and eating whatever they wanted and running around without a backpack, which you describe in your talks, you weren't that child. You were a child that was having to be careful about what you ate, having to carry this thing on your back all the time. What was it like for you?
2: I really had a a very normal childhood, I think. A blessing in disguise of being born with a congenital defect that has led to short bowel syndrome is that I don't know any different. So, I have peers that have short bowel syndrome and peers that don't, and those can be my comparisons, but I also was my my own comparison. Really, so growing up, I didn't know anyone else with this disease. And So my metric was my peers without disease. I say that because my goal, I think in life for so long was to be just like them. And to do that, I'm gonna minimize my experiences, be as private as possible about the day in and day out management of short bowel syndrome. And then in addition, You go to school, and then when you come home, that's when I was hooking up to the IV that I infused at night for 12 hours. I did go to school with my tube-feeding backpack, but all people could see was the tube slightly coming out underneath my shirt and then the fact that I was wearing a backpack. But as a kid going to school, wearing a backpack is a very common experience. And a lot of times I was tight. I was called the girl with the backpack, and no one knew the gravity or the extent of the the management of the disease, the complications of the disease, and I liked it like that. I really wanted it to only be reserved for my, my nuclear family. Even my extended family didn't really know the complexities of it. So yes, I didn't eat much. I ate a lot for taste, but that didn't mean I didn't enjoy Indian food and all the everything that we do have at every mealtime. It see my normal was waking up and getting hooked up back hooked up again to my tube feeding and then going to school, and it was a bonus or like second thought of getting breakfast in and probably and getting it in a hurry. Um, or I'm making sure it was in, nutritious because I I struggle with volume of food, so the little that I was going to eat needed to be very caloric. But I grew up in a family that only knows Indian food. My parents only know how to make and serve really Indian food, and they they live on that diet as well. So that has been an interesting <laughs> interaction, and I, I think one of the things that we lack in healthcare is really understanding the cultural implications and backgrounds of our patients and their families and how that can impact care plans our teams were never really could help us maximize what we already did day in and day out which is rice and curries and figure out how to maximize those calories and fit them in the diet that is best for someone with short bowel And there's the idea that eat, just go eat because you're a kid and we want you to use those skills of eating and not diminish your relationship or harm your relationship with food. So there's this constant balance of please eat, just go eat anything. And then mm, how do we add more calories that are beneficial for you and most likely coming from an American diet? that you're not used to eating and maybe don't even have taste buds for. So I will tell you that, that is still a uh, a battle we fight today. And then I played tennis. I did ask for forgiveness, not permission, because I, I love sports. And I thought tennis was the least, was the activity where I could get hurt the least. I was in control of uh, my own injuries versus basketball. I really wanted to play basketball, but I thought Ah, uh, the basketball could hit my chest and hurt the IV, the G tube. I could fall. What a, what I mean, it's much more physically demanding. But I commend individuals who do play basketball with this disease. So I said, okay, I'm gonna just go out for the team, and and I and I played ba- uh, tennis for multiple years, and then I loved civic service and was very involved in activities for the community. And of course, I chose things that were the most, required the most stamina, like Habitat for Humanity, and went on trips to different states to do builds and things that, you know, in 1989, it was, it was novel for anyone to even go to school with IVs and tubes, nonetheless, graduate, work, and, and live a life into adulthood. No one could give us those kind of, that kind of data, information, statistics.
0: You are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. You and your family managed
1: a reasonably normal life, but I've also heard you say that you've had lots and lots of surgeries and lots of contact with Healthcare, I think we're talking about dozens of surgeries. So, do you want to tell us about some of those, perhaps the best and perhaps some of the worst experiences you had in healthcare?
2: As of today, I've had 67 surgeries, and that doesn't count procedures, countless procedures. And surgeries include, for me, central line or central venous catheter placements. And so for someone with short bowel syndrome who relies on TPN, total parenteral nutrition, or what we're calling layman's way IV nutrition, that is a worried complication and and sometimes some common complication. And for me, that was a common complication. So that was the most common reason I would go in the hospital. To this date, I'm 33 years old and I have had 31 central lines of those 31, 26 have been infected with, an, with central line infections, and the f- first 25 were before the age of 17. So you can do the math and, and know that I was in the hospital at least once a year for a central line infection, and I have the memories to endorse that. And that's where I have probably the most trauma and the most frequent memories of being in the hospital as a child, but I also was in the hospital for abdominal surgeries. And the best interaction that I've had with healthcare is actually an outpatient visit with my uh, pediatric endocrinologist. Ha- living with short bowel syndrome requires you to see multiple subspecialists, the disease can affect multiple organ systems and and this endocrinologist the first time I had ever met him and he comes into the room and my dad was my, my, my main caregiver and it was always my dad and I at these appointments and he comes in and he doesn't look at my dad at all he looks at me and keeps his eye contact with me only And he puts my huge chart to the side. He doesn't make me get out from my chair and sit on the exam table like many do. He sat wherever there was a seat, did not disrupt my choice, and looked me in the eye and said, what is your goal? What do you want to get out of this interaction? How can I help you? I was only 10 years old. So I was shocked. I did not have an answer. But now I understand that he then knew this is a chronic relationship, that we were going to be working together for the long run, and that he wanted to not only tell me, but show me that he cared. And to see that and then know it and actually feel it with my senses was so important that, of course, I remember it even today to more than two decades later. And so now I have goals and it's, the goals are different than clinic, clinician goals. And my definition of success is different than my clinician's definition of success. And that is because it is a reflection of the last 33 years and the highs and lows and what my non-negotiables are versus acute or one-time interactions with clinicians that have certain sets. Definitions of successes or goals based on the population at, at whole, or what the center saying, or what they know and their experiences as a clinician, which is also important. And I think both sides have to communicate that. So that's a positive.
1: Can I explore that with you just for a moment? Yeah. Because it is likely that someone would think, well, She's got a complex condition that's very technical. She needs all this parental feeding. You need to be really good technically at getting this right. And yet the experience that you describe as being the most positive experience, or one of the most positive experiences, related to the communication style of the doctor who was dealing with you. I feel it's really important to explore and underline that because you're not talking about technical expertise. You are talking about something else given in a context of a chronic illness.
2: Yeah, that's very interesting, especially in the way you said it, because I think I've spent my entire life, literally my entire life, seeking the best subspecialists in the world technically, that have the technical surgical skills, the best in the world to take care of my case and its associated complications. However, at the end of the day, to keep me going, those are the memories I have of humans being humans to one another. And (laughs) I don't think I'm alone in that at all. I don't think there's nothing else to say. And to augment that, the negative experience, I mean, if, is where clinicians are putting their own metrics or and own uh, protocols on me without ever asking me what I'm thinking, what I want or why I even ask the question to begin with, or what is it gonna mean for her today? But more importantly, what is gonna mean for her in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? I'm all about sustainability, because I know my options are getting more limited and limited by the day. So what are we doing as a team to think about the long run? So for example, I have an ostomy and after transplant, it is very common. Um, So let me back up. Fortunately, growing up with short bowel syndrome, I did not have an ostomy after the year of one, after one year of age. I only had a G-tube and central venous catheter. I was connected between the short, short small intestine and the normal colon. Coming into transplant of a small intestine, I no longer had the colon. I had the surgeries to take it out. And it is common, regardless if you have colon or not, that after a transplant you have an ileostomy. That that mindset is slowly changing, but it is common to have an ileostomy for the purpose of checking for rejection and other reasons. And then after a set amount of time, they they reconnect. And that continuity is important of the GI tract. For me, given my surgeries, my complicated history, that decision was postponed, postponed. Nobody was talking to me about it. I would ask a clinic and they would say, oh, let me think about it. And then just kind of casually walk away to the point that 10 months after transplant i finally came to the acceptance the level of acceptance i am going to have an ostomy let's be real nobody's addressing it and i know the realities of my case i'm going to have an ostomy and the sooner i accept that the better because again i'm thinking about the long run the long And I have to accept very many things that I didn't expect would happen. So i am come to acceptance. I have to come to the doctor for another surgery, has nothing related to intestine. And I am forced, I am adamantly recommended, but it was not a, it was forced in every way you could, emotionally, physically, mentally, to do a test to see if I can get reconnected. There was no question of, do you want this? And when we did talk about it, and when I, I didn't even get asked. I just said it out loud. I said, I don't care about getting reconnected. And I used that word. It did not, uh, I did not have a positive response from that sentence. Look Looking back, one, there's this sense of control that everyone in the picture wants. And it's from their own beliefs, their own experiences. And so I think for this clinician, it was, you're here for another surgery, not intestine. I'm not involved in it, but I want to say my mark about the one thing where we haven't done for you. Two, that is the one thing that we haven't checked off the box, for lack of a better term. And then three, for me to say, the strength of I don't care, was being I think this is what I have thought about it is being disrespectful to a surgeon who has maybe even thought about this day in and day out, been woken up at night thinking about how can I achieve this for this young woman who's a young adult, who doesn't deserve to have an ostomy and in their eyes perceives it to be a negative thing. But none of that open communication has occurred for me to explain i have come to accept it it is not debilitating to me at all and that's not everybody's experience because of everything i've gone through in the past because of all the gi symptoms i've had i actually love an ostomy i love not having to run to the bathroom i love having a a device or a receiving device that can hold versus the anatomy that I have would that force me to run. I can do a lot of things because of it. I have, I have overcome the frustrations. I still have them, but they're not consuming when it leaks or when it, there's an odor or things that we, we, it is day in and day out of a, a life with an ostomy. But more so, I look at how much I can do with it. And then again, thinking about the long term, what are the risks that we go into by, or think about or even start to step on that fine line of going back into the abdomen, an abdomen that has been operated on so many times. And even though our intention is really good, what will we be taking a huge step back? And I'm in a unique position at 33, having done this for so long, that I now make those decisions of that option's out there, but is it worth actually going to that depth or that length? And we've had to conservatively say no to many things and choose the conservative option, which that is not what I thought we would ever do at a young age. You never thought that in just in your 30s, you'd have to be, you'd have no, you would have no more options. Just a year ago, I lost vascular access in the neck. We now, as a team, have said do not go back into the abdomen for anything unless an emergency. I have a stent in my right ureter. There is no other options to repair that ureter. I mean, the the list goes on. I don't have any more locations for a G tube. We have put it in the last possible location, and it. I'll tell you, it is not the best. I mean, the list continues to go on, and it is something that it's a grieving process, in addition to all the other grieving processes you experience with chronic disease.
0: The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health.
1: To any surgeon, to any clinician, it would seem a no-brainer, take away the ostomy, it's all good, we can miraculously do this for this young woman and she's going to be overjoyed when in fact that is not and never was your desire and you've thought deeply about it and you're making a choice that a surgeon himself or herself may not be comfortable with, but that you're making a choice because you've got agency, you've got control, you're deciding, like that feisty baby that pulled out the NG tube the day you were born, that you were going to do what you wanted to do. And I think therein lies an enormous gift to healthcare in teaching us how to respond to people who are in distress or how to respond to people who have choices to make and not making assumptions about what they might really like to have without walking in those shoes which are so important.
2: I think that understanding between the two is not respected enough. And it's a very fragile relationship And I have to tell you, it did did not come overnight that I could even say that one sentence that I said in the doctor's office. And that resulted in tears afterwards. And it took a lot of courage. And I look at friends who for every good reason have so much anger, Uh, friends who have lived this disease, this chronic disease for now decades, who have anger towards the healthcare system providers based on experiences, their complications, and they get burned out. They lose that gumption that I know is in them because I've seen it. That they lose that intellect that I know that's in them because I've seen it. To separate, to articulate and, and take yourself, the person out of it to an extent, to be that objective advocate. And that's when I think health outcomes start to get sacrificed, get threatened, and and even may change. And that's who I care about at the end of the day. That's what keeps that's what wakes me up or, and, and gets me going in the morning and it I have I can identify friends who, have this disease, or from Alabama, and I want to make sure that that their life is is different than the life I've experienced, and hopefully much better. Um, there's two little, there's two girls who are 10 now who live down the street who have this disease and go to the same children's hospital, and I always think, are we, is it, has it changed? Is their life going to be different in their 20s and 30s? I don't know. And most days I say no, <laughs> where there's a lot of work to do. But a lot of days, we I'm proud of the medical advancements we've made. But I think there's a lot more the, the human side of it. I, I don't think this healthcare system is equipped, prepared for the individual with chronic disease and their loved ones. And for them to live live with chronic disease. And then the other reason I have that courage, I, I learned this recently, actually, a friend of mine, who has had this disease since I was born since, since 1989, she was born five months, five months before me. And she has been my guiding light, she passed away on November third. And the other thing I realized is, I have evidence of those good days of not being in the hospital. I have evidence of living life beyond the disease, even though it may not be every day and there are hours or even days or weeks that it feels like management, disease, symptoms, complications consume me. But I have enough evidence of the good to drive me, to give me that hope to continue to advocate and speak up and, and then have the patients to continue to navigate that health care, that uh, clinician-patient-family relationship. And not everyone has that. For what social determinants of health, access, their own disease journey, their own understanding, their ability to cope. I mean, it and list the reasons.
0: The Journal of Health Design. Fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare.
1: Swapnath there's enormous wisdom in what you have shared with us today. Extraordinary insight into... How healthcare is responding in some cases very well, and in some cases almost in a clumsy way to how people are presenting with whatever the challenge happens to be. Now, whether you've got small bowel disease, or whether you've got diabetes, or whether you've got heart disease, or cancer, or anything else, all of what you have shared with us is relevant in those settings because people will make their own choices from their own, from their own place in their own shoes in their own journey and if we've heard anything from you it is to listen and not make assumptions because the assumptions are what lead to the poorer outcomes and tears all around not just for the poor patient but also for the clinician who feels frustrated that the great grand plans they thought up in the middle of the night are certainly not acceptable (laughs) and they can't understand why. A few last words from you before we wound up. I'm very keen that we don't lose this key message in our conversation. We can continue talking for many hours more, but I'd like to offer you the opportunity to come back and share some more with us But for now, some last words from you on what we've just shared.
2: What I always say, and I I want people to know this, whoever's listening, clinician, caregiver, patient, anyone interested in this podcast, is advocacy perpetuates advocacy. And if I've learned anything that is life-giving and helps me move forward is the knowledge that and the evidence that I've seen where the speaking up in that clinical interaction, restating some of the positive experiences, sharing it in a one-to-one interaction or sharing it on a public stage, talking to a friend with a rare disease, chronic disease, or, or even short bowel syndrome, and sharing the insight that I got from the book I read, or making the peer to peer connection, brainstorming with them, it builds on one another. I just had a a shoulder replacement in in July 29th. and of course, because we have to do things big and complicated. I went in with a UTI, a bad UTI with IV antibiotics. And so infectious disease was very adamant that you have to make sure you get the the do- extra doses that we prescribed to you before you start the prece- OR surgery, then another dose in the, she had all these timings. And so I, the immediate signal for me is I have to repeat that to anyone and everyone. But why do I know that? Because I've I've hit rock bottom by not doing that at some point in my life. The first example was when I was a, a, a 16 years old and had a major abdominal surgery. It had just been invented a couple years prior and I was transferred from the ICU to the floor without Nexium. They didn't transfer the Nexium order. So you can imagine how, what the symptoms were before we found out. And I was just on the ventilator. I had all the tubes. So for a chest pain, to have chest pain in that setting is very serious. And all it was, was a lack of transfer of a Nexium order. So I know it can be things that simple, but, those kind of stories and examples i have learned to share the case history speak up do the advocacy initiative write the blurb participate in the the article or the panel or what it may what it may be because it it all compounds because when you're in that or and you're speaking from a bed, because at the end of the day, sometimes you are just a patient in a bed. And what is it to the person on the other side to say, is she right? I mean, I'm the clinician or what do they have to offer? But because it's been a compounded experience and I've continued to speak up, I've, I've showed them who I am and the, the relationship between that and my health outcomes, but also my joy for life, and the meaning it gives me to my life, I really believe that it's not just me saying, hey, make sure that dose is on the ivy pole. It's that collective experience and and instating that message of advocacy within you, repeatedly, for them whoever it may be, whoever you're telling, responding to, to say, oh, let me go check for their response to be, oh, let me go check. Versus, oh, don't worry about it. We got it. We Don't you need to relax. You're about to have surgery where they know I will not relax until that protocol is checked. Oh, and I will go above. I will go get the surgeon if necessary. But I that does did not come overnight either and i say that because i want people to feel that they have a voice that that voice means something and it does and it has an impact on your own life and to share it with others to learn from others because it perpetuates you have no idea what someone else will be learning from you or will take from you in that effort and
1: That's important. A wonderful point to end our conversation. Something that we hear from advocates repeatedly that the most important person to advocate for the patient is often the patient themselves or the person who's sitting beside them as they are in the clinic or in the theater or in the ICU or wherever it happens to be. Swapna, it's been a joy spending time with you. I look forward with bated breath, to our next conversation.
2: I do too. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. I think we could really talk for hours long into the night. And I I do hope we do get to do this again. Uh, I would really appreciate it.
0: The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at... Journal of